and welcome to another episode of No Easy Answers in Bioethics, the podcast from the Center for Ethics and Humanities in the Life Sciences at the Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. This episode features Center for Ethics Assistant Professor Dr. Laura Cabrera and Dr. Mark Reimers, Associate Professor in the Neuroscience Program in MSU's College of Natural Science. Their conversation focuses on the complex topic of consciousness and the brain, including recent research on lab-grown brain organoids. They discuss moral and ethical considerations of such research, including how future technologies could challenge our definitions of consciousness and moral agency. Welcome, everyone. Today... I'm Dr. Laura Cabrera. I'm an assistant professor of neuroethics at the Center for Ethics and Humanities in the Life Sciences. And today uh, I have uh, Dr. Mark Reimers once again joining me for this podcast. Uh, Dr. Reimers is an associate professor of neuroscience and biomedical engineer at the Institute for Quantitative Health. And for those of you that might have listened to the, one of the previous podcasts where Mark and I talk about other interesting issues, for this one, we're going to talk about consciousness and the brain. And again, the intersection kind of brings a lot of the conversations that Dr. Reimers and I have is the intersection of neuroscience, ethical and philosophical implications of that. And what better topic than consciousness, right? So that consciousness has been one of the most debated topics in philosophy and neuroscience. So to start, uh, Dr. Reimers, what can neuroscience tell us about consciousness? Thanks, Laura. Well, to be frank, neuroscience can't tell us a lot of what we would like to know about consciousness, but it can tell us something, and that's more than it could tell us two, you know, two decades ago. So I think there's uh, something to be, to be proud of. Roughly speaking, we use the word consciousness in many different senses, and there's not a single neuroscience theory to explain all of those senses. There's not as far as I can tell, a real singular kind of consciousness that explains all of the ways we use it in everyday life. Mm -hmm. That being said, I think we can say something about conscious awareness, although we can't really say something meaningful about perhaps higher consciousness or conscious deliberation, or at least we can say less about those. But let's talk about conscious awareness. So what do we mean by that? We mean that you've had an experience and you know that you've had the experience. You can talk about the experience. You can tell us that you've had the experience, as opposed to having an experience unconsciously when you may have, the same things may have happened to you, but you're completely oblivious. Mm-hmm. And we can certainly you know, talk about those kinds of things in many circumstances, about the way that that's measured experimentally is if you give a person a very brief uh, sound or a very brief image, and then immediately follow it with some other sound or image that lasts for longer. Mm-hmm. And then the person may or may not be able to report the first sound or image, may have no memory of the first, uh, which may only last 100 milliseconds or 50 milliseconds or 30 milliseconds. Mm-hmm. So very, very briefly. And if they are able to report it, then we can measure, we can look at what is different about their brain activity compared to when they've had exactly the same very brief exposure, but they can't report it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they think nothing's happened. And very roughly speaking, what we can see, 
and this is not anything that I've done, but this is work uh, by a number of researchers, particularly I would mention Stan Dehain in Paris, that uh, where they show that there's a sort of recurrence of activity, that the sensory processing looks very similar in both cases, in the sensory areas of the brain, but what seems to happen is about 200 milliseconds after the sensory activity, there seems to be a resurgence of prefrontal activity, particularly in the medial areas, which then seems to trigger a recurrence of the sensory activity about three or 400 milliseconds after the first uh, sort of wave of activity reflecting purely the sensory processing. And then the prefrontal areas and the sensory areas sort of continue in a dialogue for perhaps half a second. Uh, and they also engage several other areas of the brain, particularly the hippocampus. So it seems likely then that what we experience as a conscious experience is something that reflects a, a conversation between several different brain areas and the areas that have actually taken in the sensations that we think of as the experience. So this, I mean, this is very interesting, and I guess it really touches on a very important point about you know what constitutes consciousness. And I guess a recent example that maybe you know, might be interesting for the audience to to hear about if they haven't heard about, but at least in terms of consciousness, is that a recent paper in, in the journal Cell talked about these cortical organoids, particularly these three-dimensional blobs of brain-like tissue created from induced uh, pluripotent stem cells. Um, so you would think that, you know, when is the line between when does this brain-like tissue might start developing something that might be this type of conversation between different areas of then we can call, oh, this organoid is consciousness. So in the study, they reported that, you know, as the organoid age, uh, like two months, for example, they started to notice certain networks events or coordinated findings of many neurons. So what does that mean? Does it mean that organoids like that, if we leave them for long enough, would they, can they become conscious? Well, Laura, that's a, uh, a very good newspaper headline, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not, I think, very you know, is, is not really a, a big worry at the moment. So first of all, you know, we talk about brain waves or synchronized electrical activity, and we can apply that to all kinds of scales. So when, you know, a person's having an epileptic seizure, they're having, yes, a brain wave, and it's synchronized activity, but it's not consciousness, it's not thought at all. Or if we are looking at a very early infant's brain, let's say in the womb, the fetus is having you know, coordinated brain activity, and so does a rat fetus. And those are important for wiring up the early stages of development. But again, there's no, you know, no experiences happening. Uh, so the waves of activity that they were describing in this paper are actually happening at a frequency of about once per second, which seems fast to our storytelling minds, but is actually about... Uh, 50 times slower than the interesting things happen in the brain. Mm -hmm. So we're, if we wanted to look at actual activity that's sort of a signature of the brain at work or processing or engaging with the world, then we're looking at oscillations that might be on the order of 30 or 40 or 50 uh, oscillations or cycles per second. Mm -hmm. The time scales there are in the tens of milliseconds rather than in the seconds. The coordinated activity that they refer to is what we call in in uh, in actual brains, a delta rhythm or a delta wave, and that's reflecting a, a sort of biochemical events where the 
membrane potential of lots of cells sort of simultaneously, and they're communicating with each other on a cellular level, goes down or up. And so that makes the cells excitable for a while or less excitable for a while. And this is the sort of thing that happens when you're deeply asleep. You will, you will have these big oscillations in an amplitude of all the cells simultaneously where they're all becoming very quiet or they're all becoming uh, more arousable. This doesn't mean that they are, in fact, active. Mm -hmm. uh, so those are what's being reported there. If you look at the, the pictures in the, the data that they actually report, there's no evidence of any faster activity that would be more characteristic of a brain at work. So now you talked at the beginning of, of this answer about, you know, like the fetuses. Mm -hmm. And so at some point in the paper, they talk about, you know, that um, they, this activity that resembles the brain activity of premature babies. Uh, no, now that's different from a fetus, but... This raises two, two questions for me. One is, when do we know that babies, not fetuses, are conscious? Okay. Do you want me to answer that and then yeah. you come to the second? Sure. So we don't know is the short answer. <laughs> but the evidence we have suggests, and this is, again, work done partly by Stan DeHane, but more by his wife. And they showed that very early infants basically don't have that kind of distinction. They don't have any evidence of prefrontal, rapid prefrontal and sensory area communication. But that particularly over the first year and particularly after nine months when you start getting myelinated connections between the prefrontal cortex and the rest of the brain, and a myelinated connection means that the messages can be sent much uh, more quickly, and so there's you know, enough time for a message to be sent and to be returned before the, you know, the, that brain region forgets what it was talking about to begin with. Uh, so when that, when that rapid communication is available, then you start seeing that signature of brain activity that is associated with consciousness, not only a sensory impression, but also a prefrontal activity, and then a, a resurgence of the sensory areas in activity in a way, and a continued conversation between these areas. So that seems to, you know, that signature seems to, it's not an all or nothing thing. It doesn't sort of switch on right at nine months, but it seems to, you know, steeply increase, you know, after nine months and really continually increases over early childhood. And so this, the second related question is that, you know, consciousness, it has been postulated that it's an emergent property of brains. And so... You mentioned that at this point we shouldn't really worry about organoids being conscious, but, you know, if we, with time, you know, develop ways to keep these organoids alive and they can start developing myelination, so do you think in the future we could get to a point where these organoids might develop some sort of more what we call consciousness? Well, I think it's always risky to say something can never happen mm -hmm. in the distant future, <laughs> uh, such predictions have been wrong again and again. However, I think that there's perhaps a, a fundamental common mistake that people make when they say even something which, which uh, you and I would agree on, that consciousness is an emergent property, and most people would say of the brain. I mean, what else could it be? Except that I think that what, the what else is all of the structure of the input that's coming into that central nervous system from the world. I don't really believe that brains in vats, put in vats their whole lives, will attain much functionality. Our brains have evolved to deal with the kinds of 
sensory inputs and motor outputs that engage us with the real world. And I don't think that without those, that they will attain anything like what we might call intelligence, much less consciousness. So now this is yet another question, because we'll be talking about human consciousness. But I guess at least some of us might see in other animals that they're conscious of something. So what, what can you tell us about animal consciousness? Uh, again, not a whole lot. <laughs> um, so the kinds of experiments that, again, uh, Stan Dehane and others have done with you know, recording brain activity in response to stimuli and then having the animals, again, animals don't tell you stories about what they've experienced, but they can behave and make decisions in ways that are conditional on what at least we say they think they've experienced. Mm -hmm. And that's not always the same as what's actually happened. And in those kinds of experiments, it seems that there's something similar to what we see in, in human beings. That is, there has to be some sort of prefrontal engagement with the sensory input and then reactivation of that sense of the sensory areas. And we don't know if they're reactivating exactly the same cells, just broadly uh, the, the same areas. And in order for uh, an animal to sort of act on or you know, make a, a clear decision about, about something that we would think of as like reporting or like being able to say that you've had an experience. So it seems, at least for conscious awareness, and, I, and again, I've said that that's only one sense in which we use the word consciousness, but at least for that kind of conscious awareness, it seems that that's a more continuous property. And I don't expect that, you know, if you could give chimpanzees a voice box that they would suddenly start telling you about their experience, because I think there's many other kinds of social uh, interactions that that are important for consciousness that uh, chimpanzees don't often engage in. Mm -hmm. So, then what do you think are the ethical implications of working with brain organoids? If we are unsure how consciousness emerges, I know that you mentioned that you know you think that they need a different type of input that they they're getting, but also I think it's problematic in a way that we don't have a clear line of defining when a certain level of consciousness gives rise to, you know, moral considerations. And I think maybe if we don't think about brain organoids, because maybe that's, you know, a question that is already we know the answer. There's never going to be like a moral or an ethical problem there. This gives to a uh, pace to start thinking about babies because, you know, there's a lot of uh, medical decisions that mm -hmm. we make and where we really need to think about, well, when does a certain level of consciousness become the matter of, of a moral problem? I think that that's a, a, an important question, Laura. My sense is that if we're going to if we're going to live with the kind of technology that we're inventing, we'll need to you know we will need some way of formalizing the kinds of gradations of moral agency and consciousness. Right now, under the American and most Western legal systems, it's you know, agency is essentially a binary, it's a yes or no decision. Once you're over 18, you're considered responsible. If you're under 18, maybe not um, for many things. So I, I think that we can't accommodate all of the sort of possibilities that um, are, are even arising now, much less that will arise with these new technologies if we're committed to a yes or no version of moral agency or of consciousness. So 
I think we will have to rethink those things, but I think it's, it's going to make for some very difficult decisions, at least in terms of the kinds of absolutes and legal hard lines that we've uh, been in the habit of working with. So I guess this guess again, we were talking about different technologies, and so moving from brain organoids to start to think about things like artificial intelligence. And so I don't know if you've seen the movie Ex Machina, where they clearly that's a theme that they try to to explore. And so I guess the question here is, do you think that artificial intelligence systems can be some conscious? Would they be a different type of consciousness than human consciousness? And what might be the implications of that? So, Laura, again, I would hesitate to say that something can, ne you know, can never happen. A broad class of things can never happen. I think that if if we could see evidence of something closely analogous to the kind of sort of reactivation that is a hallmark of at least conscious awareness then we might have a case for saying that these machines could be consciously aware. I'm not sure that that would be enough, but it would be at least a necessary condition, which I'm not aware that any current artificial intelligence actually exhibits. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, we mean so much more by consciousness and, and uh, in particular sort of social obligation and awareness that much more than than just awareness of a particular sensation. And it's hard to know what would the analog of that look like. We don't even know what that really looks like in the brain of human beings, much less what an analog might look like in a machine. So I, I, I wouldn't rule it out, but I don't see it becoming, you know, a, a moral issue anytime in the foreseeable future, you know, That doesn't mean that artificial intelligence can't be already very intelligent, and you know, perhaps we, we have other kinds of moral issues to deal with mm. artificial intelligence. So I guess one thing that uh, others have tried to do, and I mean, they touched a little bit on the movie, was um, you know the Turing test. So a test that was developed to try to see you know how if it was a machine or it was a human, and that that test was not enough to test this this artificial intelligent. Um, being of the movie so but do you think that we need a different type of if we were to develop artificial intelligence it was kind of that was hard to distinguish between a human and, and a machine that the Turing test would be relevant or you know when are we also not like just things that receive input and output without really consciously knowing what we're doing I, I don't know if it's clear my question but Well, I, I know we've talked about the Chinese room uh, analogy, uh, and maybe that's what you're alluding to here. Um, yeah, that partly why I wanted to integrate those those two things. So, you know, Alan Turing, who was you know a mathematical genius but socially rather inept, uh, <laughs> was you know trying to imagine, you know, as a first you know first attempt at how you might how you might construct an artificial intelligence that could at least pass minimally. Uh, for a human being. And I think that in those conditions, it's pretty much been met. I mean, we, you know, you're, when you talk to, you know, Siri, there, there are hundreds of uh, thousands, if not millions of people in China who regularly talk to a completely automated therapist. And, you know, they say that, <laughs> uh, so they keep coming back. So obviously, 
many aspects of human conversation can be effectively mimicked on a low bandwidth line like a, a cell phone. I, I don't think that we should take you know, the Turing test as sort of the, the absolute you know, boundary for you know, what, whether something is actually artificially intelligent. And I would think that it's unlikely that human intelligence is the only kind of model. There might well be other kinds of intelligences, some of which machines, only, only machines may exhibit, uh, that might be quite distinctive and not even be recognizable. It wouldn't pass a Turing test, but might be quite formidable intelligences on their own. I'm not sure how we would define those. And I guess this would raise an uh, important distinction. So one thing would be to say that something is intelligent, that develops some, some, some form of intelligence, versus something is conscious. Because you might be, you know, having... Uh, uh, pass all your tests and people might think how intelligent someone might be but you might be just really memorizing things mm -hmm. without really being aware or what you're learning or aware of why things happen in a certain way well what you've just alluded to is the major problem for undergraduate education in, <laughs> in mathematics but yes I, and i think that one you know people casually identify intelligence with consciousness and i don't think they're really necessarily the same thing at all and i would like you know, people to take more account of the sort of social nature of consciousness that we are, you know, a lot of what, you know, goes through our minds when we're, you know, quiet, uh, at least as far as our brain activity can, can show, is, you know, thoughts about, you know, related to what other people think about us. You know, we're, we're a compulsive about, you know, how our social standing is, and we're very motivated. We will risk our lives. In many cases, you know, how many hundreds of people have plunged to their deaths getting the perfect selfie, uh, you know, which is a great form of social status, but, you know, it's, it's uh, very risky. And so, you know, the, the compulsion that, that, that we feel about uh, how other people view us is, I think, unusual in the animal kingdom and is an aspect of consciousness that is poorly studied and, and, and very poorly understood. And so that's, you know, the original sense of the word, you know, consciousness as a word is only about 400 years old. And it comes from a Latin legal term, conscientia, which is sort of witness who knew the same things as, you know, the person under investigation or under study. And the early uses of the word are entirely in the sense of what we would now call conscience. That is, you know, you're aware of how other people would view you if you were on trial uh, for an act that you've done. Uh, mm -hmm. It's only in the last century that the sort of cognitive sense of the word consciousness has proliferated and, and dominated the, the sense, so that we think that's the, the only sense of the word right now. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it really does have to do with you know, deep engagement with how other people would view and judge your actions. Well, this is all the time we have for now, but this is definitely a good point to end this conversation and really leave our audience with this thought that, you know, consciousness has more than one layer and a lot of gradation. So thank you again, Mark, for joining us today. Hopefully we'll have you again for more interesting conversations. Well, thank you, Laura. Thank you for joining us today on No Easy Answers in Bioethics. Please visit us online at bioethics.msu.edu 
for full episode transcripts and other resources related to this episode. A special thank you to HNET, Humanities and Social Sciences Online, for hosting this series. This episode of No Easy Answers in Bioethics was produced and edited by Liz McDaniel in the Center for Ethics. Music is by Antony Ryakov via Free Music Archive. 